Welcome to Latitude 40, redesigning tourism on a small island. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We acknowledge the Palawa people of the Trawulawai Nation and recognise their continuing connection to the land, waters and culture of the islands. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. The first thing you'll notice on Flinders and the Ferno group of islands is the breathtaking scenery. In every direction, what you see is like nothing else in the world. It's deeper than quiet beaches and coastlines, mountains and mist. These islands have a rich and dark history and an intensely passionate community that wants to reckon with its past and build the right future together. No one is here because it is the easiest place to live. Everyone is here because it's different. When something works on these islands, it tends to be small and special. As the rest of the world chases growth, we chase meaning. We have a complex relationship with change because we understand what it can bring. It's different here, and we make different invitations to visitors. For an unforgettable time on Flinders Island, learn to be one of us for a few days, a week, or the rest of your life. Slow down, listen, get lost, contribute. Don't try to change this place. Let this place change you. I'm Debbie Clark. And I'm Josie Major. We're honoured to be your hosts for this Latitude 40 series, sharing the stories of the Flinders Island community and the Island Away Regenerative Tourism Living Lab. Hi, I'm Lois Island. Um, I was a bowman and I'm still a bowman, which on Flinders Island is quite a thing. Um, we're a family that have been on the island since my grandfather came here in 1913 and then set up um, a business, a corner store, which has become quite well known now. We're in our 101th year now. Um, so because of that continuity, um, and I have four brothers that still live on and around the island, we're one of the you know, founding families, if you like. Um, we've always been involved in a variety of community things like being on council um, on the local, had a stint on the local council 20 years ago and been involved in lots of community groups like the show society and the pony club and parents and friends. And I work now running and managing and owning the Bowman store along with my daughter, who's just come back to the island in the last five years, which is great. Um, I did qualify as a speech pathologist and worked with the education department in Tasmania for 10 years before my husband and I and our young family came to the island 35 years ago. That's so wonderful to, to hear that. So interesting to hear that that family history. Can you tell us, I mean, you're probably one of the best place people to talk about this, but can you tell us about 
life on Flinders Island? What's what's unique about it? What do you love about it? So my husband and I came back. He he came to the island. I came home. I grew up here and um, back in the 60s, 70s, all of the kids at high school age were flown to Launceston for school. And then after that, a lot of people didn't come back. They sort of go off and do their own thing and, you know, like I did. I mean, you, you get a, an education and you work work for 10 years with the education department in Tasmania and then your husband wants to be his own builder uh, rather than a carpenter and the local builder on Flinders retires and you go, well, you know, maybe we could go back to Flinders and you could be your own boss and I could help out in the shop and still work at the school a bit and kids might like the life which is what we did 35 years ago and our children love Flinders Island they and they had a life of horses and freedom and beaches and boating um and so when our son-in-law wanted to be his own electrician rather than work for someone else in Launceston they went through exactly this nearly the same dilemma that we did you know if we went to Flinders what are the pluses if we stay you know what are the negatives? Um, and our daughter and her husband moved here with their children the same age as they, our kids had been when we came back. And they were going to stay for five years, this is five years ago. Um, they came in January and by Easter they'd bought a block of land and they've only just, they've just now moved into a beautiful home underneath Streslecki with a view of the bay. Um, and they, they love it. I think also there are lots of other families here in their 30s and 40s who one or other of the partners grew up on the island and that draw that they call it the uh, the pull of the mutton bird because every year the mutton birds come back from their journey around the world up into the arctic and back around the pacific and the mutton birds come back to the same bar on the same mate every year um so it's called locally is the pull of the mutton bird or pull of the islands that the islands draw you back um and so we have um there's something, I don't know, it's something in the air, something in the community, something the values of the community. Um, but the place, it's a good place to live. My um, grandfather used to say about the people who live on Flinders Island, he wasn't sure if it was the damned or the damned lucky that lived here. And I think this is from a man who'd been through the First World War and come home gassed. And, but it, it's home. You know, there's a sort of, a lot of people choose to live here because they come and have a holiday and love it and want it to be like it was when they first arrived, whether it was 5, 10 or 15 years ago. And for those of us who it's home to, it, people that come on holiday forget that we still have to get up in the morning, go to work, do our work, pay our bills, go home again. Um, and they tell us how lucky we are. But then when you go to the city, you think, I am lucky. This is where I want to, Finders is where I want to be. There's so much freedom for our children and our grandchildren. Um, there are the most amazing beaches and walks and things. There's nowhere else I've really been that I've got that feel, but then I didn't live there. Um, a sense of community is probably the strongest thing. And my husband and I realised the strength of that community last year, 14 months ago, when he had a, an accident, fell through a roof and became a paraplegic. And so the community just gathered around us. It has just been amazing, the support that we've had. And that happens to everyone, whatever happens. You know, people who you might just wave out to in the street want to come and do your gardening for you. You know, just it has just been uh, a warm, 
wraparound community feel and there's so much positivity whenever guys out and about on his new bike parrot you know his quad bike we really feel the warmth coming back from the community and i think that keeps us staying here apart from the fact that we're buried in businesses and we can't get out of them (laughs) oh wow that speaks volumes doesn't it that's what community is that's probably Mm. the definition of community right that people Mm. come together and take care of each other and look after each other Mm. in those times of need, in good and bad times. So you mentioned the store is uh, 101 years operating. Can you tell us about, can you tell us about the store and what does it mean to you and and to the community as well? Um, Yeah, Bowman store was, as I said, started in 1921 by my grandparents. Um, And it's changed over the time as Flinders Island has changed um, as we got new population with the soldier settlement scheme in the 50s. the, shop, the old shop was taken down, a new one built and new stock put in that people from away, as they were known as from then, the new settlers, um, they wanted a whole lot of goods that the old store didn't have. So the family had to change and move on. And my parents then were sort of beginning to be in charge. So that um, changed and adapted. But what we are really is like a little mini mire. Um, we have, um, it's not a very big shop, a shop in the storeroom. And we have the news agency, we've got clothing, um, linen, some shoes, children's toys and games and things, um, household items, you know, mops and brooms and china. So there's a bit of everything in this little shop. People just think of it, they go, oh, my goodness, it's just like a store I used to go to as a young child. And there's a great deal of um, longing for the past, really, when people come in and they go, oh, just like the store in da-da-da where I grew up. And you don't find shops like this anymore because people are used to going to a mall where there's one shop that sells soap, one shop that sells socks. Um, we've got the lot. and But also in our position here, we're also sort of the centre of community activity in a lot of ways. We're the place you go to drop off your ad for the Island News, which is our local fortnightly paper, and we're the place where you come to buy your Island News once a fortnight. Um we are, we do the bookings for the Country Women's Association rooms across the road. Uh, when it's showtime, we take the show entries and hand out the booklets. And there's always other things that we do that are just something that we do. And people are always up dropping in a raffle book or asking if they can drop something here for a friend who's coming to town. And so we're we're very much part of the community. And um, I... I um, I did at one time as an April Fool's joke, just to make the point, get a for sale sign and put in the window in the morning of, April, of 1st of April. And I had people coming in in tears. They could not believe that Bowman's would go out of the family or that Bowman's would sell. Um, and I had to ask them, in what day is it? You know, oh, I don't know, 31st of March? Said, no, it's the 1st of April. <laughs> and then they were really cross with me. Oh, that's really great. Brought home how... But you can't do that. Your family's been so great to my family because we used to sell groceries up until the mid-70s. Um, it was also the grocery store and then the supermarket opened and the idea of having someone standing at the counter running to get your goods was a bit archaic, so they gave that away. And, um, you know, I think my grandparents and my parents have sustained quite a number of families through some tough times. We know we can't afford to pay for our groceries this week can we pay next month um you know and then they'll get a bit of work and they'll be able to come and pay for it so i think there's been a lot of that kind of support 
given out as well. Yeah, and I think we're an inst- we're a, we're a Flinders Island institution. I think that's it. And we had a wonderful party November last year. We had our hundredth party, and uh, quite a number of extended family were able to come, and loads of people in the community came to support us. And with our old fashioned afternoon tea, it was a great event. A beautiful picture you paint for us. That's yeah. uh, it's. I, I I feel a longing as you're talking. You know, you, it's it is remind reminds me of um, my childhood community. Such a beautiful picture. I love the way you described everything that's in the in the store. I can feel like I'm looking around it. It's so wonderful. Yeah, good. So, can you talk to us a bit about what what it means? You know, you're obviously really embedded in in the community, and and like you say, your store is an institutional part of that. And can you talk to us about what it looks like for Flinders Island to be thriving? perhaps your vision for, for a future Flinders and what that looks like? Uh, I think I need to premise this. I didn't haven't said yet that I've got two rental accommodations that I rent out to um, on, the, on the main rental market, but also have three new apartments that my husband and I built two years ago. So I've got, um, we need visitors to the island in order to have an income <laughs> and the shop needs visitors to the island to get sales through the door, you know, while the locals are supportive. Um, they don't always need all the things and we we notice it now it's winter time and there aren't so many visitors or hardly any. Um, uh, daily sales go down. So as a as a businesswoman, I we need people to come to the island to visit us, to um, stay in our beds and drive our cars and eat our food it's, um, and buy books or clothes or whatever it is they need from our shops. So the increase in visitor, visitors to the island is currently quite tightly controlled by the cost of getting here. The airfares are not cheap, um, but then once you're here, apart from your bed and your food and your car rental, and it's the $5 to get into the local museum, that is the only money you need to actually spend. You can get out in the, in the environment, walk, swim, Fossic for diamonds, just sit down and soak it all in. And it doesn't cost you anything. It's not like when you go to a city where you've constantly got your hand in a pocket. But what we have had a bit of an issue with lately is the type of visitors. Um, we really want not tourists. We don't want tourists. We want visitors. We want people who come with a genuine interest in finding out about how the place ticks. We don't want flop and drop visitors. We'd like, well, they can come if they like. But it um, the type of person we're really after is someone who's in, got an inquiring mind, is interested in how we tick, what happens, where does our water come from, how do you get on and off the island, how does the school work, um, and and these are the people that we find are really interested in us and we find ourselves interested in them. And they are more like your family visitor rather than a tourist who just um, comes and um, takes the last fish. We do have people on the island who think that the next visitor will take the last fish. Um, my mother said that about in the 1960s that there were people doing that, and they still are. Um, and we have had a run of campers last summer, not this one gone, the one before, uh, an excessive number of people that came with their boats and camper vans and all their fishing tackle and they didn't respect our island. So there's, there were people that came camping that did not respect the island, that left a mess, pushed their way into bushes, left their rubbish behind and caused a great deal of angst amongst the community. And that, 
I think, is the catalyst of where the regenerative concept has come out of the community. Lots of people who before were just happy to go about their lives and be, be farmers and fishermen and retirees and were quite comfortable, felt affronted by these people that were not respectful of our environment and our community. And the other end of that is the really high high roller types who come in with their nose in the air and go, they're quaint, and then wander around our shop and go, oh, isn't it sweet, and then walk out again without even responding when you say good morning to them. <laughs> so um, I don't know how you get, get around that, I think, but we there is definitely changes in the in the air, change is inevitable. And someone said to me once, if you don't get change, you die. Um, and we don't want to do that. We want to maintain that a level of visitation that allows our hospitals, um, hospital and our doctor's surgery and the school and all of the ancillary things that make this hold this community up need to be um, we need a certain volume of monies coming in from off-island that will allow us to continue all of those things. I had someone in the shop, a 40-year-old, who said she hates change, she wants it to stay just like it was when she was a child. And I said, but you can't do that. You, She would not have been on the island if her grandparents hadn't come here when the soldier settlement scheme was introduced to the island in the 1950s. Um, and I, it, the island went from a few hundred people who knew each other closely and were probably mostly related to each other, um, to almost in a couple of years to 1,500 people. And we're back down to around 1,000 now. But these people all had families, um, you know, mum and dad and a few kids, most of them. And most, of, and a lot of those people are now still here on the island, like this woman I was talking to. And my mother explained to me the change that the shop had to go through when the soldier settlement scheme was here. And there were, there were people from um, large country towns in New South Wales or um, quite sophisticated women who wanted more in their shopping experience than had previously been supplied by the shop. So the shop had to pick its game up and change and develop and, you know, accommodate those needs. And then, the, you know, over time there's been other changes that have happened, you know, when she was here as a child, there were no power. We didn't have power around the island. Anyone had had a generator. Would you like to go back to that? You know, um, we were we were once a, we had a one plane three days a week. Did she want to go back to that, or was she more comfortable being able to fly to Launceston for the day, fly out in the morning, and fly back in the afternoon? Oh, oh, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> but I think what's happened is maybe there's been a a rush of. It's happened really quickly. There's been a kind of a sudden rush and people haven't got a chance to kind of either get to grips with it or get used to it or feel they're not in control of it. Um, and I think that's where the community through the council and the Flinders Island Business Association and um, general community consultation need to look at how we as a community have a, an effect in controlling that change and putting um, stoppers on it or... Uh, somehow filters or some, you know, the little bit, there's a concern the new shipping company will be able to bring more camper vans and trailers and boats and um, uh, like 10 instead of two every week. So that would be, that would kind of bulk up because we don't have, the infrastructure's not there, like parks and wildlife 
do the, do what they can with the staff they have, but they don't have enough staff. Um, there's no budget for it. Um, and so the camping areas that there are that they'd like people to stay in get full um, and then people go bush and make their own little camping space down the track, which then creates all that sort of degenerative um, issues. So we need to be in control of our change, um, looking to sort of guide our governments, I suppose, in how where to direct funds to make sure that they're used in the proper way. Yeah. I'm wondering what what you what do you think the visitors' role in that is? Like, if you were going to speak to visitors about what it means to be a part of this change for your community and to be a a, a good visitor on Flinders Island, what what would that look like? The ideal visitor that I would see would be someone who comes with no high expectations. I think we've had some advertising done that gives people an expectation that there is crayfish crawling down the street waiting to be picked up and someone will cook it for you and put it on a plate um, or that there's, you know, abalone just there to be reach your hand down and grab off a rock and you can cook it over an open fire and it looks so romantic. Um, so there's been this sort of images used in advertising. They don't actually say there are crayfish available, but they give the impression that there are. And the crayfish season is short. We've only got one fisherman that fishes locally. So there is a real limitation on that. But people come with an expectation that there will be fine dining because of that advertising. Um, and they find that we've got a local pub that do a great bistro meal. We've got a couple of cafes that open not all the time and not all day that do fantastic food, but it's not always there when people want it. Um, and they need to be aware that they need to be prepared to prepare themselves and find out what's available. And, and their hosts, if they're staying in accommodation, their hosts need to be telling them, you know, on Sunday there's actually nothing available to nowhere to eat in White Mark. So you need, and the supermarket closes at 12 on month, Saturday, and you need to have got yourself prepared for food over the weekend. You know, we don't want people to go away saying I was starving because no one told me. So we're, we've been working on getting that information out. And tours is another thing. Like people expect they'll be able to catch, they'll come one day and be able to ring up a tour person and get a fishing trip organised um, or, or a boat trip around the island. And again, we've only got two operators and quite often the weather's not conducive or they it's not cost effective unless they've got, you know, say 10 people and there's only a couple. And that's something that we also on the island could, I mean, there's a business opportunity for someone, um, but, um, you know, it's a lot of money to put forward and you need to be able to see a future in it. So I think it's in preparedness making yourself aware of what is here or just being aware that when you come that we are a small, isolated, remote community on an island that gets serviced by air every day but by boat only once a week. And so if you go to the supermarket the day before the boat comes, there probably isn't a lot to choose from. But rather than going, throwing hands in the air and saying, oh, there's nothing to be had, say, oh, this is interesting, so tomorrow I'll buy that today but tomorrow there'll be more things um and and being uh, you know visitors tend there are those sorry we do get bad ones there are those that um 
will go to the coffee shop and complain if there isn't their particular type of cake or their particular type of savoury when there's an array of food that anyone would be happy to see. Um, but I think these people are difficult wherever they are. Um, at, yeah, I think it's having people who can come in and appreciate that they are in this remote place, that there are serv- the services are limited and make the most of the services that there are. And, f- and for people to find, you know, if you talk to people, locals, whether it be in the pub or the shops or out in the street, people are more than happy to tell you that little bit of extra information that will perhaps help you have your holiday be, be improved. Because we do want people to go away with the good. They want to be, we want them to be good ambassadors for the island and to tell their friends and family that it's a great place to come to. So this is a poem written by my mother, my mother Elvie Bowman, who came to the island as a bride in 1942, um, and she loved the place. She really did. So this one is called Ferno Islands. In the Ferno group of islands, Flinders stands out tall and clear, like a mother with her children. Little islands gather near. Nature gave us Flinders Island, full of beauty everywhere. We are proud to say it's our land. In its bounty, we all share. Where the granite mountain ranges carve their image in your mind, rolling down to sunlit beaches, there's peace and happiness to find. Feel a certain kind of magic in these islands scattered round. They still hold their share of mystery, full of history they abound. You remember days in springtime, crystal clear each distant sight. See the sparkle on the water when the summer sun is bright. In the calmness of the autumn, sunset colours paint the sky till the sparkling stars of winter like the shining heavens high. And that, I think, encapsulates what my mum thought about Flinders Island. Thank you for listening to Latitude 40, redesigning tourism on a small island. This podcast is part of the Island Away Project, which is being undertaken on Flinders Island by Designing Tourism. The project is funded by the Tasmanian government. We also acknowledge Designing Tourism Partners, Flinders Council, Visit Northern Tasmania and the Tourism Collab. The music is by Judy Jacques and the introduction, read by Jana Monon, is an extract from the Flinders Island brand story, The Island Away. This podcast has been hosted and produced by Good Awaits, Debbie Clark and Josie Major, with audio production by Clary Macklin.